All right, so we are now in the last quarter of our verse-by-verse study through the book of First Peter. Um, last week, Pastor Ron walked through verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4 and reminded us uh, that arming ourselves um, in our minds is necessary as we are at war, um, not with the world primarily, uh, but with vain and ungodly thinking and living. And walking through these verses, he also reminded us that although the world is surprised that the Christian doesn't live like them, we shouldn't be surprised that they malign or slander us for striving to live godly. It shouldn't catch us off guard. Uh, The Bible tells us that will be the case. It was so with Jesus, and it will be with us. Sorry, Gabe is here. I love you, brother. (laughs) I miss you. And he taught through the truth of verse 5 and 6 in that as they malign, they do it uh, unto certain judgment. Um, And this brings us to the next five verses, verses 7 to 11, which we'll walk through this morning. So 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. So first, let's read verses uh, 7 to 11. Anyone care to read those for us? 1 Peter 4. Josh, go for it. So, as we saw last week, verses 5 to 6, prior to our verses here, conclude with a reference to the final judgment. So, Peter keeps with that theme with the beginning of verse 7 when he says, The end of all things is at hand. The word all things in verse 7 can be translated as all people or everyone or the whole. Um, And I think what Peter is emphasizing here is that All the major events of God's salvation plan, specifically the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ, have happened. So Christ's return and the end of all things is indeed at hand. The other apostles and New Testament writers sort of come alongside Peter in affirming this truth as well. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Um, And then James says the same thing in James 5 to 7. So I'm going to read this for us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord at hand. Thank you. So the end of all things was at hand when Peter was penning this letter, and it still is today. But with the coming of the end, Peter doesn't call us to just gaze into heaven and wait. He says, Christ is coming, therefore. He says, Christ is coming, and in light of that truth, be doing this. Be doing what? Be clear-minded and self-controlled, which is basically the same thing. 
So here is a perfect example of the common uh, and encouraging use of New Testament eschatology. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded, self-controlled. Nowhere does the New Testament encourage us to set dates or mark charts or anything like that. Eschatology is always used to encourage believers to live in a godly way. You see that over and over in the New Testament. So, question, what does your discussion of eschatology look like when talking with brothers or sisters in the faith? Is it used primarily to build up or admonish or exhort or simply to win arguments? It's a question we should ask ourselves. Consider, we may need to check ourselves, but back to the main point here, being self-controlled means a watchful waiting for the Lord's return and realistic living. So Peter says, be clear-minded, which describes this practical wisdom that comes from the knowledge of the Lord. And it's interesting that um, Greeks would use these terms this term of self-control and this term of clear-minded to describe the opposite of hysteria. The opposite of hysteria. That's very interesting because usually when somebody's preoccupied or obsessed with the second coming, particularly those who have set a date and a specific time for it, it often leads to hysteria rather than sober-mindedness, right? We see that over and over. Then Peter attached prayer to this. Um, The closeness of the end can lead some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. Um, And we've all seen this, or at least heard of this being the situation. But sensible and clear and alert thinking becomes a tool in prayer for petitioning God to act and move in the time that still remains. So because we know that God is bringing all of human history to a close, it should provoke believers to depend on him. And what is the mark of a dependent, needy Christian? Prayer. Prayer is the mark of that dependent, needy Christian. In prayer, believers recognize that any good that occurs in this world is due to God's grace, and so they pray and thank him for it, okay? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers, okay? Any thoughts on that before we jump to verse 8? Oh, if you don't have a handout, there are no more handouts, so you got to look on somebody. Um, Okay. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, new life in Christ is lived in community life and drenched in loving service. So we're saved unto God, but we're also saved into God's community, God's family. As sure as you are predestined and elected, you are joined and in the body of Christ. It's not an option that we sort of have. I'm, I'm saved, and I just want God. It's just me and him. We're doing our thing in my relationship with him. Don't worry about what we're doing. We're good. No, if you're saved, you're in the body of Christ. That's it. You are knit to a body. 
um, so much so that it bleeds into eternity. Um, and above all, we keep loving one another earnestly. We see that in verse 8 here. So the word earnestly here can be translated as constant. So in other words, keep love constant. That would be a fair translation. Uh, the word describes something that is stretched or extended. So our love for one another keeps stretching in both depth and endurance. Both depth and endurance. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, another one of my favorite verses. It says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I therefore, a prisoner of, of the Lord, Paul's right in here, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Again, we're considering 1 Peter 4, verse 8 here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So this phrase, uh, bearing with, bearing with one another, um, in the NASB is showing tolerance. It's the Greek word anecho, which means to hold up, to hold oneself erect and firm, to sustain, to bear, to endure. So the question is this, to endure or hold firm against what? What am I enduring? Well, what am I holding myself firm and erect against or for? And I think the answer is anything that arises in your heart that threatens your love for and in each other as believers. <clears throat> so I'm holding myself erect firm, not in my own way or having my own way, not in my own opinions, no, but in a willingness to take a lot, to take a lot. So I want to be a rock in my love for you and my zeal to preserve the unity. So we offend each other all the time unknowingly. Sometimes we do it knowingly, shame. But we offend each other all the time. <clears throat> but what this means is we consider the grace of God to us and we hold ourselves firm as the wave of that offense crashes into the rock of my resolve to love my brother or sister and preserve this unity. I'm holding myself erect, not in my own thoughts, not in my own opinions, but I want to take a lot. I want to be a rock as these offenses hit me and say, the thing that creeps up in my heart, despise that person. Slander him. That was wrong. She shouldn't have done that. I'm fighting against that. My war is against my own heart as it seeks to look for an opportunity to slander because of this offense. Right? So I'm holding myself by the grace of God erect and with a purpose and an intent and an aim to preserve this unity. We bear with one another in love. God's love for us stretches our love for one another. We love because he first loved us. Our love sort of kindled by God's love is stretched by what? Oftentimes, testing, right? Through testing. If it falls at every blow of the wind, it probably is not love. 
Love never fails. Love doesn't see the flaws and failings of a brother or sister and find some secret joy in exposing those faults and sins. On the other hand, love covers a multitude of sins. We see that at the end of verse 8 in 1 Peter 4. Love covers a multitude of sins. So this is a uh, proverbial truth that sounds a lot like Proverbs 10.12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Um, A love that doesn't cover sins will crumble and blow away like dry sand in a community of sinners. Love covers a multitude of sins. We are a community of sinners redeemed by grace, given the very righteousness of God in Christ. But we're we're fallen. We do sin against each other. But, again, love covers a multitude of sins. All right, so where am I at? Look at verse 8 here, um, and we see that what Peter is saying that is love covers over, I'm sorry, some look at verse 8 here, and they say that what Peter is saying that love covers or atones for one's own sin. So they may look at Matthew 6, 14 to 15 and come to that conclusion. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So is that what Peter is saying? Should we even understand Matthew 6 in that way? By forgiving others, um, we are atoning for our own sin. God won't forgive me if I don't forgive them. So how, how should we understand that? Well, I don't think we should understand Matthew 6 or 1 Peter in that way. Um, I think our 1 Peter uh, 4-7 passage here is simply saying this. When believers pour unrestrained love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. Right? In Matthew 6, uh, 14-15, I think it helps maybe to uh, simply read it in the reverse. I think that it it helped me at least as I sort of read that. And this is how I read it. Matthew 6, 14-15. If you do not forgive others consistently, if you live this lifestyle of this unforgiveness towards others, you show that you haven't been forgiven of your sins. But if you do forgive others, you show that you have indeed been forgiven by the Father. Um, That may be helpful. may not be helpful, but it helped me as I tried to sort of work through how we should understand that. The Christian who has been forgiven so much sin against the infinite Holy One ought to be eager to forgive others their sins against his sinful, fallen self. The offense against God is infinitely greater than any offense against us. One who has been forgiven so much will forgive. Back to what I said earlier. It's ungodly to use the sins of others as a springboard to attack them. The unbeliever does this, but the believer should be zealous and striving to cover a multitude of sins in love. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, to the point of that, um, to the point that he forgave us, we're called to forgive first. So in that way also. Hmm. Good point. Good point. Yeah. And, the and, and, doesn't owe us anything. <clears throat> we owe them love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Standing constant and ready and pursuing um, a 
forgiveness for others. Yeah. Norm, you had a thought? When we read First uh, Peter, it says the multitude of sin. It's almost as if it doesn't cover every sin, a multitude. Hmm. But if you read Proverbs 10 12, <clears throat> it says uh, love covers all transgressions. So yeah. in case we, uh, we it doesn't cover every sin, yeah. Proverbs shows us that you can. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Any other thoughts? I love the ESP. It says fervent in your love. Fervent means, like you had mentioned the word stretch, but it means the maximum. Hmm. You stretch out that love to the maximum. Yeah. You're running full force yeah. towards that. Absolutely. And that's not always um, easy, you know. It's never easy. But, uh, <laughs> it's right, it's never. But the Lord gives grace. Um, and if anyone should have this heart disposition, it's the Christian. Because the Christian has experienced love from an infinitely holy God, and we sin against the Lord. I mean, how many times a minute? Um, in our thoughts and our intentions, he sees and are exposed before him. So the Christian should consider and have a disposition of thankfulness and forgiveness. It comes from God, and it, as Piper would say, it bends itself out. Um, and it ought to. You know, so... All right, <clears throat> where are we on time? So verse, verse 9, any other thoughts before we jump to 9? Okay, verse 9, um, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, so this love <clears throat> rolls right into verse 9, this, this forgiveness, this love covering sins, rolls right into verse 9, and you see this theme here. Remember still that our context here is the end of all things is at hand. And what does Peter say? So, be hospitable. You, you have to love like how practical Peter is. He's just so level-headed. The end of all things is at hand, so be hospitable. He doesn't say the end of all things is at hand, so sell your possessions, quit your job, why are you paying taxes, it doesn't matter. No, he says, the end of all things is at hand, have people in your home. Provide a bed and food for visitors. I, I love this. And people think like the Bible is not practical. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, hospitality was one of the marks of the Christian community. Um, we'll look at a few verses that shows that. Whoever wants to read them, go for it. Romans and then 1 Timothy 3. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, I love that. Qualifications for overseers. Able to teach and hospitable. Like, just the Lord doesn't leave. He doesn't say focus on this only or on that. Both are extremely important. Right now our emphasis, hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. <clears throat> So hospitality, again, was crucial to the Christian mission and the spread of the gospel. When Jesus sent out his 12, 12 disciples to proclaim the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons, they stayed in homes, the homes of the hospitable, Matthew 10. After the woman and her household were baptized in Acts 16, she said, come to my house and stay. Again, the show of hospitality. Um, where am I at? <clears throat> And hospitality was necessary in order for the church to even meet 
and homes, which was a necessity during the times of the early church and still is now. Um, we are called to show hospitality. I mean, think about this. We have brothers and sisters whose only option was to meet in the home of a Christian as they gathered last night to worship and pray. Like, this is, it, it's, it, it ought to be happening, and it is happening, and this, this, what Peter brings out, this show of hospitality is huge. We ought to show hospitality. We have been called to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been called to be hospitable. All of this without grumbling. So we're going to eat at the heart here a little bit. Are you prone to grumble when your guest eats more than expected, <laughs> though they didn't bring anything themselves? Maybe. Or leave crumbs on the carpet that you just vacuumed before they came? Did something creep up and say, look, Ron knows me. I'm a very... <laughs> I'm a neat freak. And sometimes it's there. I'll just put myself out there so y'all feel comfortable. All right? Um, or parks a little bit on your grass instead of minding the placement of their car's tire in your driveway. Are you prone to grumble? Or maybe you feel like you just don't have a nice enough home to be hospitable. We say leave that to those who have the 3,000 square foot home with the granite countertops right? And the stainless steel appliances. People are probably more comfortable there anyway. It's just a nice place. Now, the encouragement. I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but it's important, I think. You are called to be hospitable. You, as sure as you can hear my voice saying you, you are called to be hospitable, to show hospitality without grumbling. Again, Peter's just so practical in his godly wisdom here. The words without grumbling recognizes that those who open their homes may grow tired of the service. So they are encouraged to be hospitable, joyfully, not caving into the temptation to begrudge their charity to others. It's just so, so practical here. Show hospitality without grumbling, right? I'll just go on to verse 10. That's a Selah for us, okay? Um, so I've been loving the schedule of the teaching because I really do. I get to teach all my favorite passages. So thank you, Ron, for putting together that schedule. You've shown grace to me, brother. Love you. Um, and this is another one of my favorite pa passages. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Uh, <clears throat> wait a minute. I jumped a verse. Back. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the first part of that verse. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. All right, so Peter reminds us that love and forgiving others and showing hospitality has to go even further. Jesus taught his disciples, but the God-man also washed their feet. So love for our brethren has to move us to serve them. Uh, Peter, early in this letter, uh, talked about various trials believers face. Now he writes to us to consider God's varied grace to believers. And he shifts specifically to gifts believers have by God's grace. 
All right, so Peter uses the word here uh, for gifts. He uses this word uh, charisma. And it's a special or divine gift received without merit. So the Apostle Paul uses this word in a few places in his letters, which we'll look at this uh, charisma. Um, having uh, charisma in different variations of that root Greek word, having charisma that uh, differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy and uh, in proportion to our faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 5. Now there are a variety of uh, charisma, but the same spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. We'll hit on service in a bit. Um, 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift, the charisma you have, but was given, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. As with all things, gifts are something believers shouldn't boast about. Why? Because that contradicts the very nature of it being a gift, right? Again, they received it without merit. They haven't earned it. This also implies here in, our verse, in the beginning of verse 10 here that each believer has received from God at least one spiritual gift. Now, it took a lot of time and a lot of study to come to that conclusion. And my conclusion came mainly from the deep and profound words at the beginning of verse 10 as each. It's deep, right? That's how I came to the conclusion that we all each have one gift. The Greek word here is also translated for every man, everyone, every, or each. So although I believe the Bible does affirm that every believer has received at least one gift, it's clear, and we've sort of seen that through trying to work these things out, that those gifts aren't necessarily the same. So again, this displays God's grace manifested in its various forms. And why are these gifts given? To boast, to become conceited? No. Verse 10 tells us why. It's to serve one another. Now, check this out. I want to get technical again. The term serve can be translated, again, we're focusing in on verse 10 here, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The term serve can be translated ministering, and it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. So... In Matthew 18 to 15, Matthew 18, 15 to Mark 131, the word is used for providing meals. Same word, serve, <laughs> ministering. Um, in Matthew 25, 44 and 2 Timothy 1, 18, it's used of visiting those in prison. In Luke 8, 3 and Romans 15, 25, it's used of providing financial support. And in Matthew 20, 28, John 12, 26, Acts 19, Philemon 13, Hebrews 6, it's used in general terms of serving. Okay? So all this to say, spiritual gifts are given to serve and to help others, to strengthen others in the faith, and as 1 Corinthians 12 says, for the common good. And I love this. Verse 10 says, we manage or stewards God grace as we use our gifts. We're stewarding God's grace. So I think in uh, having that in mind, we ought to strive against the temptation to be preoccupied with trying to make much of ourselves before men as if they gave us the gift, right? If you gave it to me, I'm tempted to 
show you this is how I'm using it. You know, aren't you pleased with how I'm using it? But you can give it to me. The Lord has given us these gifts. And again, it's not for boasting or for our own glory, right? It's for the glory of God as we serve one another. <clears throat> We're called to serve and help and minister to one another. So concern yourself with the one who gave you the gift. He is your audience and Christ is the one to whom you will give an account. We should note that spiritual gifts also are not primarily, they're not primarily a privilege, although they are a huge privilege, I think they are primarily a responsibility, a call to be faithful to what God has given you. So pray for grace and humility to steward God's grace well and serve as unto him. So I'm going to read something <clears throat> by Burke Parsons here. Uh, he's the editor of Table Talk, and he's a co-pastor at St. Andrews in Sanford, just north of us. Um, in considering spiritual gifts, he says this, each of us possesses particular gifts. Some among us are called to teach, some are called to encourage others, some are called to show mercy, some to contribute with generosity and to lead with zeal, but these things are not mere duties, he says. Our fulfillment <clears throat> of the gifts God has given it's not first and foremost what we do. Rather, it is about who we are. We are members of the body of Christ. I love that. It just context. And we have been equipped by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to sustain, to sustain us in our divine calling. As Paul writes, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when, it, when each part is working properly makes the whole body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Okay? Time. Good time. All right, any thoughts before we go to the last verse here? <clears throat> Well, um, we're going to talk a little more about um, those spiritual gifts and sort of try to wade through those waters a little as we look at verse 11. Um, all right. <clears throat> verse 11. Okay, so verse 11, um, Peter here seems to draw out um, two categories, uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Um, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever. So that being said, it's clear from 1 Corinthians 12 um, and Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 that all gifts involve serving and edifying others. Uh, we have them for that purpose. And Peter's not denying that truth here when he sort of breaks it up into two categories. And examining gifts functionally, I think Peter seems to be placing gifts into two categories of speaking and serving. Again, and examining them functionally. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. So simply put, in placing the gifts into two categories of speaking and serving, 
all the spiritual gifts are included under those two categories. Um, I think that's what he's getting at there. Thomas Schreiner says here, the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, teaching, tongues, and exhortation are comprehended under speaking, whereas gifts like giving, leading, mercy, helps, and healing, and miracles fall under serving. <clears throat> it is not as if Peter does not know about the spiritual gifts that are the particular gifts. His purpose was to speak of them generally um, in this, this discussion of um, how they practically work or what they practically look like functionally, right? So I think that's helpful. Um, okay, so first, whoever speaks, speaking the oracles of God. Um, the one who speaks should aim to speak the very words of God. Um, you see that in this expression, the oracles of God, that refer to the words that God has given to his people. Oracles of God. Um, Acts 7, uh, 38 says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Romans 3.2 says, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic, basic principles of the oracles of God. You need uh, milk, <clears throat> not solid food. So using spiritual gifts to minister to and serve others means that one is one speaking is aiming to speak God's word. It's so easy and sometimes tempting to think that we can build others up in our own wisdom by our own words. But to the one who is given this ministry of speaking, he has to be careful to speak God's word and to be faithful to what? The gospel. To be faithful to the gospel. Okay, so question, what does it mean to speak the oracles of God, as we see in verse 11 there? That when we are speaking, <clears throat> is, it, is that saying, when we speak these oracles, and I've heard this in the past in different Christian circles, that we are speaking new revelation or revelation directly from the audible voice of God? Again, we hear that a lot in Christian circles. Should we understand the text in that way? Um, I don't think so. Uh, Leonard Gopold, who was a professor of New Testament at Cambridge, in his commentary on 1 Peter, is helpful in sort of trying to work out um, how we should understand this. He says, to speak God's words constitutes an exhortation to the speaker. Hence, the phrase does not suggest that somehow the words spoken in church constitute revelation from God. The Bible is consistent. What Peter writes here aligns with the rest of Scripture. He says those who speak need to speak in accord with the gospel. He's not saying that believers receive some individual, private revelation that when spoken gives some new revelation to its hearers. Okay, that's, that's not what's being communicated here. All right, any, any thoughts on that? Have you given thought to that or yeah. seen that in that way? Go ahead. Um, you know, uh, uh, the expression, oracle of God, um, 
springs to mind that he's actually talking about, you know, oracles are the things that contain the truth. So it doesn't say that you are an oracle of God. It says you're speaking something that the oracle said. So that, to me, suggests exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So a, uh, not a foretelling or... Foretelling, foretelling, foretelling. I'm getting them mixed up now. Any, anyways, we're not speaking anything new and that's being uh, uh, pinned to add to the canon. If we're speaking anything, it's the truth of the word of God. So this, uh, this foundation laid by the apostles, right? Not building, on, uh, not building our own little foundation. We're building on that foundation and speaking those same truths that are, are spoken. Um, I don't want to get into all this. Uh, we could, and I'm tempted to, but um, we, we're not speaking new revelation. This is the same old stuff. My professor used to say, or Richard Barcellus, I like calling him my professor. Um, he said he would say, if it's new, it ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new. Right? <laughs> all right. Um, now, switching to whoever serves. That was whoever speaks, now whoever serves. Um, just as with those who speak, those who minister and serve others cannot rely on their own strength. So verse 11 tells us plainly that they serve by the strength that God provides. In other words, they need God's power to carry out the tasks. Again, this word serves is the same Greek root word for deacon. So this applies from waiting tables, which we see in Acts 6, to basic uh, menial tasks. Uh, the word is used in the New Testament for Christian service in general and for the office of deacon in the local church. So think about what Peter is saying here. He says that you're stewarding grace, right? You need grace to speak God's word and you need grace to go, to go cut the lawn of the shut-in, right? Both require grace from the Lord. It's just the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in addressing this is just so, so practical. We're inclined to think, absolutely, you need special grace given by the Lord, wrought by the Spirit to minister the word well. But setting up tables for all flock or collecting money for our missionaries or keeping an eye on kids in the nursery, that's nothing, right? We just sort of get it done. And... You just think about the prideful independence in that type of thinking and repent. The end of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is only glorified in this type of ministry when it's carried out in his strength and not our own. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like to rely on grace and do it by his strength? I think prayerfully relying upon the Lord for grace to, as verse 10 says, steward his grace well. Lord, I need grace to steward your grace well. I'm going to teach, Lord. Give me grace and help. Help me not depend on myself or even to trust in my study. Help me to trust that you have given me grace and you will help me. Lord, I'm going to cut this yard. Give me grace. Help me to do it without grumbling. Help me to do it as unto you. Help me to serve this person well. Do you consider that on both ends of the spectrum? You are a dependent 
creature and you need the Lord's help and grace. Whether you're pouring coffee to give to people in Sunday school or whether you're up here trying to teach it well, all before the Lord are seen and counted and you need grace. And he gives grace for those things. Okay, so God receives the glory because he is the one who is providing the wisdom and strength for ministry. So the provider is the one who's praised rather than the one receiving the provision, right? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All right, so let's conclude this. Um, All this is done for the glory of God. Peter, rightly so, is jealous for the glory of God. Peter's exhortation becomes an affirmation. God is to be praised in everything. Now, Peter concludes this section with this doxology, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, which some see as the original end of the letter with the rest being added at another time with the intention of addressing sort of a new wave of persecution. You see this sort of doxology here at the end of verse 11, but you still have verses 12 to 19 of chapter 4 and verse 5. Um, but some do see this as the original close of um, the, the book with that other stuff being added later. But uh, I, I don't think uh, that's how we should understand it. Because um, you see a lot of letters that have doxologies um, before the close of the letter. Um, Romans, let me see, 11.36, you see this type of doxology when Romans has 16 chapters. Galatians 1.5, you see this type of doxology when Galatians has six chapters. Ephesians 3.21, you see this type of doxology when Ephesians has six chapters. Did I say six chapters for Romans? Sixteen chapters. And the same with Philippians 4 and Revelation 1.6. So though letters may conclude with the doxology, we shouldn't assume that that has to be the case here. Um, instead, I think the doxology indicates the end of sort of this major section um, in, the, uh, in, in, in his letter, almost concluding this major section. Okay, so looking at this last phrase, um, to him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Now, there are different schools of thought around that last part of verse 11. The question is, is asked often, to whom belong glory and dominion? Um, Schreiner again says here that we should probably understand this last phrase to refer to Jesus Christ. Um, And he gives a couple of reasons why he thinks that. First, he says, the phrase just before speaks of glory belonging to God. Um, In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And he says, so it's likely that here we have a reference to Jesus Christ. Talking about the Father and then talking about the Son here. Um, He also says it's not hard to think of the glory being affected through Jesus Christ, which we see there, and also being intended for him. So we see that idea in Romans uh, 11.36 where it says all things are for, well, all things are, wait a minute, all right, all things are through God, but they are also for him. And so he's basically saying that it's not a stretch to consider that of Christ here. Um, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, so helpful, I think. Um, But all in all, the goal of the Christian faith is that glory belongs to God and Christ. And the word um, amen here is an affirmation. 
it reflects the response of the people of God to the glory and power that are his. So Peter essentially is saying, uh, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, and it should be. It ought to be. Amen. And so we amen, Peter's amen, and we'll close with that phrase. Okay?